The thoughts and opinions expressed on Halal Money Matters do not necessarily reflect the views of Saturna Capital, Amana Mutual Funds, or their affiliates. Hey, welcome to Halal Money Matters. I'm Monim Salam, and today we have a special guest with us uh, as a host. His name is Scott Sinclair. Hey, Scott. Hey, Monim. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Not too bad. You want to give a brief introduction to yourself? Uh, yeah, I work here at Saturna Capital in the Fund Accounting Department, and I'm excited to get my first episode of Halal Money Matters. So not to get too much into the fund accounting, but what does that really mean? Basically, I help manage the uh, background of all of the funds, all of the transactions, all the subscriptions, the redemptions going on in the background. I work on all the uh, gears that grind in the background. Mm, so when, when the NAV goes up or down, you're the one who's calculating that. Exactly. I'm the one who tells you if it went up or down. That's great. So when we're in this particular episode, we're talking about college education, those type of things. NAVs matter oh, uh, yeah. for those investments. So the guest we have is uh, Abdullah Sayyid. He is the executive director of a continuous charity. Continuous charity basically provides interest-free loans for college students. This topic is really interesting because I get a lot of people asking about how do they fund their college education with scholarships, uh, without taking out any loans uh, and those things. So I think this will be a great conversation to have. Uh, Scott, I know you've been uh, in college as well. And so what, what was your experience? Uh, quite recently, actually. Um, I'm really interested to hear what he has to say because when I was applying to colleges, I really only saw two paths. You have to take out interest-bearing loans or you have to have wealthy enough family or parents to just pay for it up front. So I'm really curious to see what he has to say. Well, let's get started then. Let's do it. So Abdullah, welcome to the show. It's really an honor to have you here. Well, thank you, my name. Scott at Saturna Capital for having me here today. Really appreciate it. So I've known you for a long time, and it, this is a good point in our time to be able to talk about college funding and, and scholarships and those type of things. I know uh, for myself, my daughter is eagerly awaiting to decide where she wants to go to school. And part of that has to do with what colleges are offering her as far as either scholarships or grants or those type of things. Um, for all of my kids, I've told them from the very beginning, like, whatever loans that show up on their FAFSA forms, we're not going to accept them. So don't even look at that as a potential for that. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have the same things in mind. Absolutely. You'll be surprised that we hear from students all the time. Uh, you know, I signed this form. I didn't know what subsidized versus unsubsidized loan was. I didn't know this was a loan versus this was a grant. Uh, it all comes in one letter, the package that FAFSA gives you, right? And you're like, yeah, I got this like $80,000, but it's just like $2,000 of grant and, uh, you know, $78,000 of loan. And part of it is subsidized, which means it's due six months after your undergraduate degree. And for most uh, graduate programs, there is no subsidized loan. And unsubsidized means this interest piling and snowballing the day you get that loan. Yeah. And it's crazy. And that's, that's probably one of the reasons why there's so much of a, a debt crisis for student loans in America. People really don't know what they're signing up for. So let's get started. I mean, I think that the first part of it is kind of breaking that down, right? So here's what I've realized a little bit from my uh, experience of, of going through multiple kids, you know, applying for colleges and those type of things. One of the overall things that I found is that if you're really wealthy, then you can probably afford college. If you're really yeah. poor, you can afford college, you're going to get the grants and, and, and scholarships, need-based scholarships, those type of things. But there's a sure. huge middle class that basically can't afford it. And so, uh, and it's not, it's not cheap. Colleges are very expensive. And so, um, you know, maybe we can start there and you can talk a little bit about what your experience has been uh, with how, let's say the middle class actually funds their colleges. I totally agree with you. At the same time, I want to challenge the notion a little bit because college is so expensive. 
over the last 40 years, college tuition, college cost has increased by 1,200%. You know, it's 12 times more expensive to go to college in 2020 versus 1980, for example, right? And um, that's a huge shift. The other thing I'll mention is even if you are wealthy, right? You, I guess even if you are um, a physician, let's take a physician, for example, but you have a couple of kids in college, now you have to make a decision. Am I going to pay that lump sum up front? Am I going to get it financed? That's the decision you have to make because now you have two tuitions to pay. So it's not only a problem for the middle class. And, you know, there are more resources. There's more awareness in those that have college-educated parents or, or though, like, like you said yourself, you're, now you're getting involved with your kids and you're talking to them about how to pay for college uh, versus those that perhaps uh, maybe are in the lower tier because their parents maybe didn't have that same guidance or maybe their parents didn't even go to college. It's advocacy, it's knowledge of the system, it's really trying to find the best way to pay for college, but also the packages that you get. I know kids of physicians that are now wanting to be dentists, for example, that are in $400,000 worth of debt. They got the loan, they were able to go to the best school, but will they really have the most income after they pay their uh, college tuition or their outstanding loan? I'm not sure. So then what do you do? Let's go all the way back in time, <laughs> if you allow me, right? It's about planning. Everything is about planning. Those that are listening to this podcast, maybe you're a student right now, maybe you're a parent right now, it's never too late to start planning, right? Your kids are going to be young. Maybe they're a year old. Maybe they're four or five years old. Maybe they just got into high school. Let's start saving up for their college expenses. We, we know that education is a true liberator. Education allows for us to really showcase our potential. We all have potential, but it's about how we showcase that potential. Right? Education gives us that well-rounded outlook on life and, and those experiences that we need, that education that we need, that knowledge that we need, that mentorship that we need that comes with the college education to be able to be the best versions of ourselves for this world. And that's what we need. We need each truly talented individual to bring their best. And that's how we're going to improve society. Yeah. It's really interesting. You mentioned that in all of our seminars that we give, and we, when we talk about education planning, we talk about the rising cost of colleges. And there are tools available. There are even IRS benefits. Like, for example, you can open up an education savings account where it's only $2,000 a year. But if you do it every single year until they're 18, it's $36,000 you've saved, not including the growth, right? There's UTMA, which is universal transfer to minor accounts. There's Roth IRAs that you can open. So there are ways to be able to do it. And we really encourage all these savings plans because you're right, it does help quite a bit. And one of the major things that I hear all the time is, well, I don't want to save uh, money because that's going to affect my scholarships. My answer to that is, well, you don't want to bank on being needs-based in you know, 18 years from now. That's basically saying, yeah, in 18 years, I want to be poor enough that I want to be able to qualify. That's not planning, right? That's that's planning for it's disaster, not. probably. And one fallacy I want to just throw out of the window right now is that scholarships are need-based. Yes, many of the scholarships are need-based, but guess what? Many of the scholarships out there are merit-based. You do well in school, regardless of how much you make or your parents make, you're eligible for that scholarship. There's other scholarships that have to do with the majors that you choose. There's other scholarships that have to do with perhaps you're a minority and minorities have set up their own scholarships. You know what? There's different types of scholarships. Take the time to go to these scholarship websites, scholarships.com, FastWeb is one of my favorites. All of them work the same way. You set up your profile with as much detail as you can. Don't skimp on the details because 
you know, whether you love hiking, you're a new immigrant to the country, or if you have a disability or, or anything like that could qualify you for a scholarship that's out there. So need-based scholarships are not the only scholarships out there. I would say equally, there's scholarships out there for different things that you want to do in life, or perhaps different ideas of service you have for the community, uh, different majors that you want to study. So go to these scholarship websites. Again, FastWeb, Scholarly, Scholarships.com, there's a bunch of others. Create that profile, and they're all cut and paste. Like, once you write that essay, you're just going to have to copy-paste that, tailor that a little bit for the next application. And if you have your profile nicely put into one of these websites, you just got to press a button and keep going. I've told my kids, like, you spend an hour on a scholarship and you get, even if it's $1,000, that's $1,000 an hour you have as a salary. Come on, you, you can't even beat $1,000 an hour. So definitely worth the time and effort to do it. And I mentioned so, a couple of other resources, profellow.com for graduate students, because if you're looking to go to graduate school or do a PhD program or professional school, you might even be able to get funded. They'll pay you to go to school. Profellow.com is another website that focuses primarily on graduate school. Just wanted to slip that in. So let's break this down a little bit further. So now you talked about planning from the very beginning, right? Let's supposing you're in a situation where you have some, you don't have all of it to be able to pay for, but you have some that you did and you need to be able to subsidize some of that as well. Can you talk about a little bit uh, the difference between subsidized and, and non-subsidized loans? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned in brief, there's two types of loans that the government or the financial institution is going to offer you. One is subsidized loans, and usually these are for undergraduate students. Uh, that basically means they're not going to charge you interest on those loans until six months after. And with a presidential order, right now all loans are frozen until June 30th anyway. Uh, and we're hoping and praying that that goes beyond June 30th, uh, because I really believe that principal-only loans are the future for our country. Uh, that our government invests in principal-only loans, like they give you an amount of money that you need for college, and you pay that money back without interest. Of course, administrative fees and all of what's needed to, to make that happen. We also wrote a letter to the government, to the president in particular, you know, advocating for principal-only loans with other organizations. But getting back to the topic, subsidized loans are those where take it if you need it. I would really like to push that if you don't need to take a loan, don't take a loan. But if you need to take the loan and you have no other way, and we're going to go over many options during this podcast, go ahead and take the subsidized loans. If you have no <laughs> other options, please go ahead and take the subsidized loan. That's only if you have no other options. An unsubsidized loan is, let's say you step into, uh, you're put into school September 1st, or whatever day you sign that contract is when the interest starts accruing right away. And you never want that type of loan because it's crazy. Like an 18 year old can sign up to get a loan for like a hundred thousand dollars. That's unsubsidized. We don't sell them a home. There's restrictions on uh, getting a driver's license. You have to go through, but w without any knowledge, without any training, here's a piece of paper, sign it. You're in debt for life. That is not going to be a long-term solution in this country. Uh, we really need to invest in other types of loans and, and other types of finance for college education. But yeah, if you're asking for the difference between subsidized loan and a subsidized loan, subsidized probably six months after you graduate to pay that loan and interest will start ticking and collecting and snowballing after six months. Unsubsidized loan, it starts on the day you sign the contract. That helps quite a bit. So thank you for that. Looking at it from, from that perspective, I mean, I think one thing you mentioned was really important and that is that you know, only if you need it. And from my experience traveling the country, seeing, seeing different Muslim student associations and students and those type of things, what I found 
is that many times people are taking these loans as a lifestyle choice rather than yeah. a need choice, right? I mean, meaning that, you know, yeah, maybe they can cover some of their tuition and maybe all of it if they start working 20 hours a week. But, you know, they want that apartment. They want to keep their same lifestyle they had when they were living home. They want to mm -hmm. keep in college and then they end up taking out those loans. So you are a college student. So, you know, maybe you do need to kind of adjust your lifestyle and not take out those loans to be able to do that. But I, I do find to, that to be very common. One thing I'll say when I'm to that is lifestyle choices drive us crazy. I mean, somebody could want to get the latest and best car, biggest home, you know, certain types of clothes, jewelry, whatever. Would you do that for education? Would you want a gold tooth installed because the lifestyle choice versus would you want to go to a college that you can't afford and an apartment that you can't afford? So look at it that way. Yes, you want comfortable enough where you can focus on school, but you want to be able to make those sacrifices so you're not in long-term debt. The choice is yours. The choice is literally in your hands. Do you want to be in long-term debt or do you want to make the sacrifices to make this work? One thing I'll say right, right off the bat is we may look down upon certain colleges, in particular community college, but community college is like the lifeline for a lot of students that come out of school without much debt. So community college is your local college, right? It's not too far away from you. You save transportation costs and time. Two, you adjust a lot better because class sizes are much smaller. It's more intimate. You get to learn more, whereas big universities have weed out classes. They literally call them weed out classes. Right. To start with 400 people, you end up with 200 people. The other 200 didn't make it. Either they were not interested, the material was too much, or they, they failed to meet the marks. So community college, I'm such a big advocate for. Personal story, going on a little tangent here. When I graduated, I said, I'm not going to go to UConn. I used to live in Connecticut because I know everybody at UConn. I want to be far away from everybody. Right. Personal choice. Right. So I went to Purdue. I really wanted to go into engineering, particularly aerospace engineering. I didn't. I went into business management major. I learned that aerospace and engineering in particular wasn't for me. I still love it. I still love to, you know, gaze at the stars and whatnot, but maybe that particular major wasn't for me. I get to college, super big shop, right? You're away from home for the first time ever, learning how to cook, learning how to shop. You know, at that time, cell phones weren't a big thing, but like, you know, there were, you get your own cell phone. Um, mm -hmm. You're getting a lot of things that you didn't have before, and you're having to manage multiple angles and multiple dimensions of your life they didn't manage before, right? Making your own food, clothes, transportation, communication, picking your own classes. So we go from like parents being involved to parents being completely uninvolved and you being in a different planet, right? Uh, and some people, they thrive with that because they find another tribe, another community that helps them. And some people, they don't thrive with that. And I was at Purdue for a couple of years. Uh, and didn't do that well. It was amazing. I learned a lot. I made a lot of friends that I'm still in contact with. Now I had life experiences that altered me up until this day. But in two years, I, I came back home completely broke, understanding that my father's salary wasn't enough to pay for college, that he was taking out parent plus loans, understanding that that transition was a little too much for me, came back home and wanted to transition a little bit more slowly from uh, you know being at home to being away in one day, right? Uh, so I went back to community college. So my GPA, I can't even mention my Purdue GPA on the show. But um, <laughs> in one year of transitioning to community college, my GPA shot up to like a 3.7. I understood all the classes I was taking. I was back on it again. And then I transitioned to another four-year university. I, I graduated from Texas State University. And cum laude, I graduated. Uh, Congratulations. The top of my class. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was such a fantastic experience, but it took me a learning and I lost some money and I lost a lot of, you know, respect for myself there and regained it.
by going through the community college system. I truly believe that maybe not every kid, maybe a lot of kids have it figured out. And I would like to say from hundreds of students that I've spoken to, that those would be the minority that know what they want to do, know exactly where they want to go, have the funding and have the parental support to do it and have a tribe at that university that they can rely on. Great, go for it because you are one of those that they'll get it done. Then there's the others, I would say maybe a past majority that need that transition in community college is the key. You save money, a whole lot of money going to community college. Whereas, you know, one credit hour might be 150 to $200 and one credit hour in a four-year university is going to be $1,200 to $1,500, but it's 10 times cheaper to go to a community college, and your transition is a lot easier, and you get into the groove of it, you figure out your major. One of our crises is there's so much opportunity, our students are not able to really decide a major until they go to college, and uh, they may change the major every two years. Some people graduating now in five or six years, right? That's a lot of money mm-hmm. that you and your parents invested in your education. I'm glad you found through experience and by burning money where you wanted to go. But if you go to community college, you save that time and money. So that's my little tangent and my story. No, no, I appreciate that. So what, there was one thing you highlighted in there that I want to clarify on. And that's you said something about a parent plus loan. So can you talk a little bit about that and what that is? As there are loans directly to the student, which, again, our government has not trained and there's no course that these 18-year-olds can go through uh, to understand what they're signing. But there's loans that go directly to the student. We talked about subsidized and unsubsidized loans. And that uh, FAFSA letter, there's also going to be grants, which is great. Accept them. And then if that's not enough, then there's also parent plus loans, which your parents take. Usually the interest rate is a little bit higher. That's an additional loan. Like, so you take it alone and then your parents have taken a loan to bridge the gap. And the parent plus loan is something I didn't know my dad had taken until later. Then I was like, wait, you have to take a loan to send me to college in addition to me taking a loan out? That doesn't make sense. I'm just going to assume that's going to be unsubsidized as well. So interest starts right away. Correct. Most parent plus loans are unsubsidized. I believe now there is a genre of subsidized parent plus loans as well. I advise the listeners to look into it. Overlying or underlying or overlying, whatever you want to call it, all this is the fact that, you know, this is a Halal Money Matters podcast. So it should be a given that when you're going to take these interest loans out, interest is haram, right? It's that's forbidden. And so, you know, you're basically from an actual financial perspective, you're getting into a hole, but then also in the hereafter, you're getting into a hole. So it's, it's like a, for, for Muslims, it would be like a double negative, right? And maybe yes. even more than that, because the interest part is so much worse than whatever you can face in this life. Yes, um, absolutely. Sometimes we, we don't realize that because our thinking is clouded by what's in front of us. I need to go to college. I need to go to this college because my friends are going there. Or for some other students, I need to go to this college because I really believe in this college. But you need to take a step back and see, like I would say five or six key elements. One of them is transition. Are you able to successfully transition from where you are now into that college, right? Or is that gonna be too big of a jump for you? Two is finances. Are you gonna be able to finance this journey in a halal way, like you said? And three, I think is also culture right? Let's say you're going to a college where there's nobody that can help you with your faith matters, right? There's not a Muslim community, and it doesn't have to be a Muslim community, but there's no Muslims at all. There's no chaplain. It could be an interfaith chaplain. There's no prayer space. You know, there's no understanding of halal food, haram. That is part of your transition, but it's also part of your your faith and protecting your faith identity, right? Uh, Those are amongst a few things that I think people should look into when they're selecting a college. You bring up an interesting point because you mentioned about prestige and those type of things, right? So let's supposing 
that my daughter got into Harvard and we can't afford it. And she got into a state university, which we can afford. Now, a lot of people would say, wow, it's Harvard. Let me go out and take the loans or do whatever it's it because, you know, hey, it's education and it's benefiting the ummah, that type of thing. Or is it better to do the state university? Now, I know the answer to that question for myself, obviously. I think you probably know what I would say, but I want to hear from you and, and maybe what anecdotally what you've heard from other people as well. So Harvard is a unique example. So we could take, for example, a different university, but Harvard's not going to let you get into school and drop out because you can't afford it. So Harvard will find a way because they have one of the world's largest endowments to keep you in school and take care of your finances. And that's the other thing, like whatever school you're at currently, or you got into that you want to go to, go talk to that school, two places, your department, whatever department you got into, go talk to them about what additional resources are available in terms of scholarships, uh, in terms of for forgivable loans, and then go to the financial aid department and talk to them about what is available because you know, on these websites, perhaps those alumni funds are not going to be available, but at the university, they're available. So it's mm. about having those conversations. But let's just say you got into an amazing school. The private school is super expensive. If they're not going to take care of you, if they're going to make you get into debt, and Harvard doesn't seem to be like one of those, anybody who's, uh, who gets into Harvard is able to afford it with the financial packages that they give. But let's say in this X university you get into, you're not able to afford it versus a state school that's still reputable and still has that quality of education that you got into where the finances make sense. Over here, let's say in X school, you have to take interest-based loans. State school, you don't have to take interest-based loans. No-brainer, go to the state school because you don't want to be in debt forever. Like I said, profilo.com and other resources, talking to your universities, your department, and also your financial aid office. Most universities that you get into, if you're doing well, or if you did well, will want to keep you. They'll definitely make it work for you. No, that's great. Uh, and so I want to kind of, um, by the way, uh, Scott, do you have anything? Um, yeah, the advice I always got when I was applying to schools was for your undergraduate, go to the state school, save that money, get the four-year degree. Yeah. And then once you've graduated, if you want to keep going to school for that graduate degree, a lot of these more prestigious schools will pay you to go there for your graduate degree. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that can be really nice to <laughs> save the that's money true. early on. Yeah, that's true. And I'll um, kind of switching gears a little, obviously, in, in, in the realm of education. What, when you're looking at it from an Islamic perspective, and now we're going to talk a little bit about what you do and those type of things. But before we do that, how has traditionally Islam uh, looked at education, funding of education, those type of things? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, before I do, one resource I forgot is Muslim Campus Life. So there's a new website and a new organization called Muslim Campus Life. Amazing brother, Saman Khan, I think he's actually at Harvard. That resource helps Muslim students understand which campus accommodates most to them, whether it's halal food, whether it's a chaplain, a place to pray, percentage of Muslim students you know, at that school, so on and so forth. So it's muslimcampuslife.com, and they also have a booklet that you can download and go through. You know, I, I'm not sure about classical Islamic thought, but here's what I can say. It's so powerful. It's so powerful that our book, and we're talking today in Ramadan, it starts with Iqra, right? But Munim, let me ask you, how many times does Iqra come in the passage? In the I entire passage, twice. Twice. There you go. So, read in the name of your Lord who created you. He created human beings out of blood. Read in the name of your Lord, the most generous. 
Allama bil qalam. The one who taught you with pen. Allama al-insana ma'alam ya'alam. He taught human beings what they did not know. Iqra is so powerful and our tradition starts with that. It doesn't start with one iqra. One it starts with two iqras. And what's the difference, right? One iqra is religious knowledge. The first iqra, iqra bismi rabbika ladhi read in the name of your Lord. Now that's, you know, divine. We're talking about the Quran. And then the other one is God taught human beings with a pen. What type of knowledge is that? That is your worldly knowledge, right? We're in this world and we use the resources around us to benefit us and to benefit mankind. That could be a car. Car didn't just drop from heaven. It had to be created by creative minds and using the resources that we have here on earth, right? So that knowledge is also very precious. And just like the divine knowledge is mentioned in the Quran. So for us, our tradition has always been both types of knowledges. It's both types of knowledges that allowed Islam to spread, right? At one point, within a hundred years of the Prophet Muhammad passing away, Islam ruled majority of the known world at that time. Uh, and that was because of the combination of the two ikras. In our tradition, if somebody is enslaved, which is not pleasant at all, you know, there's a lot of rewards for freeing a slave. But if a slave teaches somebody how to read and write, they're free, right? That's found in our tradition. And there's so many other things that are found in our tradition that have to do with knowledge and the, the sacredness of knowledge and teaching others. Matter of fact, that's one of the, your sadaqajariyas, right? You teach somebody something. And how do you teach them? Because you have to have knowledge, right? You teach somebody how to write. You get the reward of them writing for life. Mm-hmm. Our tradition is so based on knowledge. Yeah, and that's why, I mean, I think traditionally also, uh, and even now, there were patrons who would pay for right. people to, to study. Uh, but then also zakat was used as a source to pay for education as well. And so you have this this tradition of, you know, more like a, a, a grants, uh, or scholarships in in the modern world, we've had that in our tradition for a very long time, and and we've really we haven't gotten away from it. There are there are different organizations that keep doing it, but definitely from the aspect of a patron uh, perspective, like I come to you and say, look, um, I I really think you know Abdullah, you have a lot of potential, um, so I'm just going to cover your education for you because I know you're going to do great things in your life, right? Um, those things uh, don't happen anymore, but that kind of brings in a little bit about uh, a continuous charity. Uh, where you are um, the executive director. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about how I got started. Uh, what do you guys do? What other resources you can provide for potential or existing students? Absolutely. Just to piggyback off of what you said, it does happen in the modern day era too. You, you'll hear a celebrity on Instagram posted um, a picture with a fan and the, the favor they did to the fan is like paid off their outstanding college debt. Or you'll hear of others coming into a high school and saying they'll cover everybody's tuition as a local businessman. It does happen one off and we've seen that generosity. But few and um, far between, I guess. Exactly. So how do you do that as an institution, right? That's what you and I want to discuss today because we want to think long-term. So the Muslims had done this and I'm sure other communities have done this in a way of an endowment. What is an endowment? You're putting aside assets, whether they're real assets, like let's say an apartment building or There are other types of assets and the growth on those assets goes to serve that purpose. That principle can never be taken away. That principle in eternity is going to generate revenue for that one particular purpose. So that purpose, for example, could be feeding animals. It could be for students that are going to study Islamic education, for example, or also for healthcare needs. So those endowments have existed for such a long time. You know, even in in our faith tradition, 
in Medina, the palm trees of Medina. Until this day, the fruits that come from the palm trees and the revenue goes right back into serving those that, that are making the Hajj or visiting Mecca or Medina. Uh, it's amazing that that was 1400 years ago, but that endowment still continues. So likewise, a continuous charity was set up by American Muslims as an endowment to take care of education for American Muslims. Why do we exist? Why does a continuous charity exist? A continuous charity exists because, like you said, the double whammy. One is cost of education in America is so high, an average person may not be able to afford it. That'll just deter them from getting an education. And then if they do go seek an education, the double whammy is, well, it's against our faith tradition to indulge in interest. For example, that subsidized loan, well, that's okay for four years, but what happens after the six months after you graduate? That creeps up on you real quick. The unsubsidized loan or the parent plus loan, that's going to be from day one that you're paying interest on. We wanted to create an alternative, and this is not an alternative that can help everybody and anybody because our endowment is still small. Alhamdulillah, we've been able to give out $6 million in loans to 450 plus students, averaging between eighteen dollars to $20,000 per loan. And what we do is we push the student, apply for scholarships to ask their parents and their friends and family and their community for resources, save up themselves, and we bridge the gap. And with that gap, We've bridged so far $6 million. Part of that is actually recycled money because these are interest-free loans that students pay back. So our students have already paid us back $2.2 million. So the system is for students, by students, if you will. And with that, we've saved $3.5 million in interest because an average American pays their college loan over 18 years and now it's creeping up to over 20 years. And our students are done paying us back in an average of four years. So they're not only interest-free, but they're debt-free within four years. Uh, they can move on with their life, make substantial decisions because this is not hanging over their heads. This is not a financial decision they have to think about anymore. That $3.5 million, where is it now? That interest that's saved that, that didn't go to the financial institutions or to the government. Well, that's now in our communities, either at the dining table or sending another kid to college or investing to build other institutions. So that's the beauty of the endowment is that once we're putting money in, it's for this purpose. The principal is in touch. Students are getting an education, not only are they paying back the loan, which is like paying it forward, many of these students, currently only about 20%, but we, we hope to grow that, are, are donating back to the endowment, not their donors to the endowment. Yeah, the more students you graduate, the more people pay back, the more they're going to give more because they have the affiliation towards it. It's like a virtuous cycle that actually keeps going. Have you heard of anything like this uh, outside of whatever you guys are doing in the U.S.? There are other efforts, definitely. They're more like family-based or masjid-based. So like a masjid would have, for example, a scholarship. For example, there's an organization in Minnesota, which we acquired called Myla Muslim Youth Leadership Award. And for the last 20 years, they have been giving scholarships, and now they've converted to giving interest-free loans. And like that, there's other community-based, either city-based or local-based organizations that even an uncle or an aunt would give a loan without interest. So th this has been happening on a smaller level, but luckily, with Allah's help and with the community's support and belief in the cause, we've become a national organization. I actually, when in doing my research a few years back on interest-free loans, I actually found there's some cities around the country that offer uh, interest-free loans as well. Some of those, like, for example, the one I was particularly looking at was in Baltimore. They had a 0% default rate. Like, they've been running for like 25 years and stuff, and nobody's ever defaulted. It's amazing because they realized the benefit of it, and they wanted to help other people. And they realized it was a sense of responsibility. That if they didn't pay yeah. it back, 
other people would suffer because of it as well. And so there's a couple of different cities around the country. I don't know if it's ubiquitous all around, but it's definitely there. So that's why I was wondering if, if you knew of any kind of models like this uh, around the country. Yeah, there definitely are Muslim communities and, and like you said, cities and others that are doing this as well. What I've seen as well is higher education has become a topic that politicians are talking about, right? So it benefits them if they come up with a policy like New York State, for example, now has a policy. I think so over $120,000. If you combine as a family, make under $120,000, you're eligible for some free state tuition in state schools. So there are definitely a lot of opportunities that are coming up and our students should look into it. Look into their local resources first and then national resources so they don't miss out on those local resources that you mentioned, the city of Baltimore. Also, city of Atlanta has something similar. Uh, Scott, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I was actually curious from like a student perspective, maybe the parent of a student, um, if they're trying to get access to um, these resources, specifically at ACC, what does that process look like on their end? Because I applied to college, FAFSA, government loans, went through that whole process. What does it look like if I'm trying to avoid those interest-bearing loans, if I'm trying to get access to these resources? Real quick, we've got our application process. And I'll just go over the application process. But one thing you just mentioned that was so key is parents. I think parents should get involved. I mean, parents are involved usually in most things school-related. But when it comes to college, sometimes parents are hands-off. They're like, well, you pick the college, pick the major, you know, you get whatever loan you want. Like, uh, you apply to whatever scholarships you want. Let's change that conversation to parents being involved from the very beginning. Like Munim said, investing uh, and saving up for the kids' education the growth they'll see in the principle that they've invested, and then also in the process of talking about college, they're talking about education. And what we've seen is different trends, for example, younger age groups, sometimes they're opting for coding boot camps, or even folks that got an education long ago, but they wanted to re redo their skills to get a certificate, right? Education is continuous. So uh, looking at it in that way, I think parents should be involved from the very beginning, at least guiding students and sitting with them, helping them fill out the scholarship application, helping them understand the requirements. And at A Continuous Charity, or ACC, we've got four main criteria that we go by. So one is merit, how well you did in school, either you know, in high school or undergraduate, whatever you're applying for. Because it's community money. We don't want to just give it to anybody. So we have particular thresholds. Number two is need. So need is not defined by like, you have to be under the poverty level or something. Need is defined by what is that gap that you're not able to fill after talking to your friends and family, applying for scholarships, and then you still have to take an interest-bearing loan, but we don't want you to, so what is that gap that we, we can give an interest-free loan for? Number three is community service. Our program is more geared towards those that are serving the community in some way or have ambitious plans to do so in the future because, again, it's community money. We want them to benefit from the knowledge that they're seeking and then use that knowledge to give back to the world. Uh, number four is uh, Islamic education. So this is primarily for Muslim community, those that are seeking to better themselves in some way and understand their faith in some way, whether that's learning the Arabic language, uh, memorizing the Quran, wh whatever, on the smallest level to the highest level, because we know everybody's at a different level of trying to better themselves. You know, as Mwene mentioned, people feel obligated when they get that 0% interest rate from the city of Baltimore to pay it back. So we feel those people will get obligated to us, especially if they're coming with the right intention, right intention of bettering themselves, serving the community, and that's why we have those parameters in place. To your second question, Scott, remind me, that was how you apply? Yeah, exactly. Like, what does that process look like for the student yeah. themselves? So the application is quite rigorous, and I'll say only about 20% of people that actually 
end up applying, receive the loan. It's a rigorous process throughout. We've got different sections. We've got three essays. One of them is more like a personal statement. Tell us about yourself. Another one is more one of the challenging aspects of your life and how did you overcome it? There's another question in there of what is your intention behind getting the loan? So those are some essay questions. There, there's also a section where you tell us about your GPA, how well you did in school, recommendation letters are a part of it. So that merit part that I was talking about, that's also there. The need part is also there telling us about what other loans you may have. What is your family's income? How much is going to be your personal contribution versus your family contribution? We want to know those things. We want you to know those things so you make a better decision by listing it out. You know them. And we would also like to know them so we can make a better decision about who meets the criteria of need, merit, community service, Islamic education. So all those questions are in the application. Just go to acceducate.org and you'll see the apply button there. Read the criteria. Read the FAQs before you apply. Application is generally open from January 15th through April 15th. If you don't meet that criteria, you can always try to apply next cycle or tell us if you have a genuine need even outside of cycle. We do consider students outside of cycle. We consider both types of students. Students that are currently in college, right? So like they need a loan just to go to college. And then there's graduates who are in debt. They don't know how to get out of that debt. We can also refinance them as well. And hopefully they're working so they're able to make bigger payments and we can, once they are done paying, use that money again for the next student. And that's how it works, you know, give it to one student, they pay back to the pool, we fund the next student while trying to grow the pool by fundraising as well. So you mentioned this now, which is a graduate school is there. What about medical school or dental school, those type of things? Do you also help uh, in those areas as well? Yeah, it's surprising. We, we've got a lot of medical school students, PAs, dental school students, lawyers. So like the professional degree programs, we do have uh, a lot of students from that as well. And it's all about like, one, um, how much they need. Sometimes we're not able to afford what they need. Our cap is roughly $40,000. Uh, we don't have a true hard cap, but that's kind of a marker for us to know if we can afford it or not. Um, and then we also need a student to create a plan. What's their personal contribution, family contribution, community contribution? Have they talked to the school about reducing their tuition by going to the department, by going to the financial aid office, so on and so forth, and really working with them individually to reduce their burden as much as possible and reduce the gap. Like an average bank wants to give you whatever loan you need because they're going to charge you interest over time. They want you to pay the minimum amount. We want you to take the smallest amount of loan you need, pay the biggest amount, and get out of debt as fast as you can. Yeah, so, it's yes, the opposite. We, yeah. yeah, we That's have true. helped. Uh, Quite a few medical students and dental Great. students as well. And then also there are other uh, resources, like you mentioned, um, that people could go to. I mean, I know some people who paid for their medical school or dental school through other means. For example, you know, like for teachers like Teach for America. I think there's a yeah. rural program for medical uh, students as well. So there's a lot of other options as well that, that people go to. And a lot of times they just don't exhaust them. They just don't even look, right? They, uh, military might be another option for, for some people if, if, if they so choose to, to do that as well. Yeah, there's a lot of options out there. Exhaust the options, look into all forgivable loan options. For example, you mentioned medical school, going to rural areas, teaching inner city kids. That's going to be an experience that changes you and not only gets you a forgivable loan, for example. So uh, ACC wants to be the last resort. We want you to do all your homework, apply for all scholarships, look at all programs in your local area and related to the field that you're studying. And then if you truly have, ACC will give you a loan bridge the gap. This has been really great, right? So we, talk, we talked a little bit about scholarships. We talked about subsidized versus non-subsidized uh, parent plus loans. 
But the biggest overarching things are plan early, but it's never too late to start saving or, or uh, investing for the education. And there's multiple different options available. You can find them at mnfunds.com uh, for like education accounts and those type of things. Once you actually are in the process of, of applying and those type of things to colleges, the best option is not always the most expensive one. Sometimes for different people, community college might be good or state school, you know, those type of things. Yeah. It's really a college needs to fit your need and uh, not the other way around. And the last thing we talked a little bit about was what specifically a continuous charity does, which is gives those kind of interest-free loans out there. There are other programs, so look into those as well. Am I missing anything? Nope. I, I think that's quite comprehensive. Again, if folks have any questions, go to our website, communicate with us. We're more than happy to assist in whatever way we can. Yeah, that'd be great. So really, I appreciate uh, your time uh, and uh, spending with us. And and hopefully people, uh, our shareholders and our audience will be able to benefit from, from a lot of these different resources. So thank you very much, man. Assalamualaikum. Uh, th- thanks for having me. My name is Scott Eterna and Mighty Mutual Funds. Really appreciate it. Uh, ACC is here, a continuous charity org or acceducate.org please look us up ask us for whatever help and resources you need take care i like it please consider an investment's objectives risks charges and expenses carefully before investing to obtain this and other important information about the amana funds in a current prospectus or summary prospectus please visit amanafunds.com or call toll free 1-800-728-8762 please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing the amana funds are distributed by saturna brokerage services member finra and sipc and a wholly owned subsidiary of saturna capital the investment advisor to the amana funds Investing involves risk, including the risk that you could lose money. The Amana Funds restrict investments to those companies consistent with Islamic and sustainable principles, which limits opportunities and may affect performance. This material is for general information only and is not a research report or commentary on any investment products offered by Saturna Capital. This material should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security in any jurisdiction where such an offer or solicitation would be illegal. We do not provide tax, accounting, or legal advice to our clients and all investors are advised to consult with their tax, accounting, or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Investors should not assume that investments in the securities and or sectors described were or will be profitable. This podcast is prepared based on information Saturna Capital deems reliable. However, Saturna Capital does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information. Investors should consult with a financial advisor prior to making an investment decision. The views and information discussed in this commentary are at a specific point in time, are subject to change, and may not reflect the views of the firm as a whole. All material presented in this publication, unless specifically indicated otherwise, is under copyright to Saturna. No part of this publication may be altered in any way copied or distributed without the prior express written permission of Saturna Capital.